You are now listening to the April 4th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello everyone, this is Brian from the Story of the Kings. The Bible in the Old Testament records the story of Israel being divided into northern Israel and southern Judah. It also gives us the records of numerous kings who ruled those two countries. We mostly know about Saul, the first king, David, the second king, and Solomon, the third king. After King Solomon's reign, Israel became divided. There are many people who may not know about the kings that reigned in northern Israel and southern Judah. Many names sound similar, so it's difficult to keep track of who's who, so many of us easily give up. Through the new program, Stories of Kings, I plan to provide an overview of the history of Israel and meditate on how God desired to restore Israel. To begin the series for this week and next, we'll share the first story of Abraham that marked the start of Israel. Israel's history starts with a command God gave to Abraham to leave his home to an unknown country. Let's read Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's family. Go to the land I will show you. The nation Israel, which would be formed in the far future, began through Abraham, who followed God's word. Abraham's hometown was a city called Ur in the original Mesopotamia. At that time, this city was the greatest city in Mesopotamia. He passed the fertile region on the way and moved to the Palestine land called Canaan. Palestine is currently the region of Israel and its surroundings. Let's look into the details about how the Palestinian region that Abraham moved to was. The southern part of Palestine was occupied by Egypt with its new dynasty. The Hittite Empire to the north also had great power. The clans in the Palestine region such as the Amorites, Edomites, Moabites, Ammonites, and the Philistines, lived within the borders of these powerful nations. The culture of the Palestine region was very diverse since several clans lived together. They also had an advanced culture. Their social and political structure had their king at the center. They formed alliances among the nations and fought the great countries from the north and the south that threatened them. Abraham and his family, who lived in a different region, moved to Palestine. Through Abraham, who went there by believing in God's promise and guidance, the history of Israel began. God's promise to make a great nation through Abraham's descendants was fulfilled through Isaac and Jacob. Isaac was the promised son, and he had twins, Jacob and Esau, at the age of 60. As Jacob grew older, he had four wives. He had a total of 12 sons from his wives. Through the 12 sons, the tribes of Israel were formed. The eldest son, Reuben, along with Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, were born from Leah. Joseph and Benjamin were born from Rachel. Dan and Naphtali were born from Rachel's maidservant, Bilhal. Gad and Asher were born from Leah's maidservant, Zilpah. While Jacob was wrestling with God, he was given a new name, Israel, which means, you have wrestled with God and with people in one. The nation of Israel was being formed. Jacob only loved Rachel, and among his twelve sons, he loved Rachel's son Joseph the most. 
Because of this, Joseph was resented by his brothers and was eventually sold to Egypt by his brothers. There he lived as a slave. Afterwards, God prepared Joseph and made him second in command in Egypt. Within God's plan, a severe famine came to the whole land of Egypt. Jacob and his sons went to Egypt to get some food and met Joseph. Their sin was forgiven and the whole family moved to Egypt. The Bible records that when Jacob moved to Egypt, there were 70 people in Jacob's direct line of descendants. Now the nation of Israel was preparing to be born. Next week, we'll consider the story of how Jacob's family came to be as one nation and how they returned to Canaan from Egypt. This concludes today's lesson on the stories of kings. Thank you for listening.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, Where is Jesus? I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. Well, I hope you've had a great Easter so far this morning. We have had in my house a very fast-paced Easter morning, and I bet that feels a lot the same for you. Maybe uh, you're still thinking to yourself, like, man, I just realized the kids are going to be in here today. Uh, what we're doing this Easter Sunday and in this moment is actually unleashing God's Word into our lives. And I believe that the Word of God is powerful and is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so this morning, we would love to see the Word of God actually penetrate our hearts. Some two billion people are actually celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ today. And I'm just wondering this morning, are are you part of those two billion people uh, who are excited about Jesus being raised from the dead? Is that all we can do for Jesus? Absolutely. It's an exciting thing. It's an exciting thing to know that our Savior uniquely was raised from the dead to declare all that he said happened was true, and all that he taught was indeed true. But maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering to yourself, is this really a big deal? And why do people make such a big deal about Jesus Christ being raised from the dead? Uh, I think Paul picked up on the fact that some people were asking this very question because in 1 Corinthians 15, he actually asked this hypothetical question, uh, what if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead? And then he talks about what that would be like. And let me just tell you, it's bad. He says, we are still left in our sins, and the hope that we have uh, is actually accredited to us as foolishness. See, it's not a good thing if Jesus Christ wasn't raised from the dead for the Christian. B.B. Warfield, uh, thinking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, gives us a positive picture of it, though. In fact, when he speaks of it, he says, the center of gravity of the Christian hope and the Christian faith itself rests in the fact of the resurrection. See, for him, he says, the resurrection is so important that it becomes the gravitational center of the Christian life upon which everything else hangs and holds together. Well, this morning, I've chosen to direct our gaze toward the resurrected Savior in John chapter 20, verses 11 to 19. Now, if you've been following the story of John, uh, we know that John in his gospel has just told us in chapter 19 about the death of our Savior upon the cross. But, the humiliation of John 19 is followed by His exaltation here in John 20, where Jesus is literally on the rise. And in John's Gospel, there's a lot of descending and ascending language. Jesus going down and coming up. See, Jesus came down for us so that He could go up to the Father, opening a way for you and me with God. But did you know that our resurrected King Jesus, He actually appeared before eyewitnesses, catch this, on 14 different occasions by my count. And at some times, in some of those occurrences, He actually appeared before as many as 500 people at one time. And that was all over a 40-day period after His resurrection. And on one of those occasions, what we find is, is that Jesus revealed Himself to Mary. In fact, this morning, we're looking at the very first appearance of Jesus after being raised from the dead. And Mary just showed Peter and John that Jesus' body was gone. And then Peter and John, we are told, left. But here we find in verse 11 of chapter 20 that Mary stayed behind weeping at the door of the tomb. And we're going to see that Jesus' resurrection reconciled us to God and created a new forever family. We're going to see this. You can write this down. This is the main point. That Jesus' resurrection reconciled us to God and created a new forever family. Now we see this first in the fact that we find Mary weeping in verse 11. So look with me in your copy of God's Word again. We see this picture. And it's an important picture to stop and pause at. There we're told... But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Now the reason it says but Mary, of course, is because Peter and John left and went home after they saw that the tomb was empty. 
But here's Mary weeping before this empty tomb. And I believe that John's mention of Mary is fascinating for a number of reasons. Now see, uh, what's, what's fascinating for me here is that the four Gospels all list different women at the tomb. Maybe you didn't know that, but if you read through the different Gospel accounts, uh, all four of them have different folks, women, at this tomb. So the other three Gospels mention Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James. And then you'll find that Mark adds Salome and Luke adds Joanna. But this really shouldn't bother us. I mean, maybe if you're looking for problems in the Bible, that, that causes you to struggle. But this shouldn't bother us because I believe that there were at least four women that visited the tomb that morning. The two Marys, Salome and Joanna. And, and you might say, well, why do some Gospels mention some folks and, and not others? Well, I believe that Richard Bauckham gets it right in his groundbreaking book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. See, there he argues that each of the Gospels utilized specific names throughout their accounts as eyewitness testimony of people who would have been available to corroborate their stories. They would have been eyewitnesses that the original audiences could have gone to. And so Bauckham writes this, he says, It is natural to suppose that these women were all well known, not just for having once told their stories, but as people who remained accessible and authoritative sources of these traditions as long as they lived. See, the Gospels would have been orally shared immediately and then written down with the verses within decades of Jesus being raised from the dead. And so the reason that we have some names some places and not others is because John would tell people his gospel. And I'm sure some would say, you've got to be kidding me. You're telling me that somebody was raised from the dead? That Jesus isn't dead anymore? I don't believe you. And John would say, you don't believe me? Well, let me tell you some folks to go check it off with. You need to go check with Mary Magdalene. You need to go check with Peter, who, by the way, I'm faster than him. I beat him to the tomb. You need to go and check with the other disciples. You need to go ask them. And they will tell you that everything that I said is absolutely right. But if you're making up a story, you have to admit that Mary's an interesting choice for the first witness for a couple of reasons. I mean, why Mary Magdalene in all of these stories? If you're thinking that that you want to make up a hero and you want people to believe that Jesus is who you're saying He is, and that He was actually raised from the dead, you could have done so much better than Mary Magdalene for a couple of reasons. For one, what we know is, is that Mary uh, is not exactly the kind of person that you would look to for a testimony. See, she's a woman with a past. She has a history. In fact, Celsus, the second century critic of Christianity, he mocked Mary's witness of the alleged resurrection, as he says, describing her as, catch this, a hysterical female deluded by sorcery. Now that is not a very affirming description of anyone. Husbands, not the kind of thing that you want to say to your wives and keep your head. But Luke 8 tells us that Jesus delivered her from seven demons. In other words, Celsus was part right. He just missed the rest of the story of Mary's life. But after we are told that Jesus delivered her from seven demons, Uh, what we find is, is it seems like Mary Magdalene, this woman with a past, actually led a group of women who followed Jesus all around, along with the disciples, giving witness to who He was and serving Him. See, Jesus changed her life and her identity. And, And she's not a great witness, to be honest, from a worldly perspective. But she's just the kind of person that God loves to use. See, He loves to use the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. But not only that, women had worse problems than unequal pay in the first century. Not that that's a small thing. But their testimony wouldn't even hold up in court. So the first century historian Flavius Josephus, speaking about women, said this, let not the testimony of a woman be permitted because of the levity and boldness of their sex. And then William Lane Craig, thinking about the use of Mary, he says, and and I had to paraphrase it, but basically this, that this is so embarrassing, Mary, that it must be true or they would have used men. (laughs) 
right? Now we can draw a couple of encouraging applications, I think, from this. Uh, First, God still calls people with a past like Mary to himself. In fact, if we're honest, all of us have a past. All of us are sinners before a holy and righteous God. And I don't know how special you are, you think you think you are this morning because of your great sins, and how impressive you think they are to others. Let me let you know that no matter what it is that you are boasting in as far as the sins that you've committed, God's grace is greater. And you need Jesus as much as I needed Jesus and every person in this room. We all equally need the blood of Christ. So if you're here this morning, the good news is really that the gospel is for all of us. And Mary had seven demons, and Jesus rescued her and allowed her, Mary, to be the first person to find his empty tomb. What a word of hope for those of the past, right? But second, God values women more than any culture does. What a great thing to talk about on Easter Sunday. There's no one that values women like God does. Now, as many of you know, I'm an unapologetic complementarian. And for those of you who have no idea what that means, that means that I believe that God actually created men and women in his image together. That they are uh, equally... They were equally valuable and have equal dignity before God. They are equally intelligent. All of those things. And yet God also created us diverse. We don't just look different. He created us with different roles, both in the church and in the home. So both in the household of God and in your household, God made us different. And that wasn't an accident. He did it on purpose. I believe Paul's really explicit about that in 1 Timothy 2-3. But don't miss this. Jesus could have shown himself to Peter and to John, but he chose to reveal himself as the risen Lord first to Mary Magdalene, a woman with a past. Sisters in Christ, I just want you to be encouraged by this. And you need to know that the way that you are viewed is not in the way that some man that has treated you poorly in the past ought to view you. This is not the way that God loves women created in his image. You need to know this. The world might not hear your voice. It might marginalize you. But God values your witness. Not only that, husbands, I I believe there's a message here for us. Uh, We need to be reminded and we need to ask ourselves this morning, do we value our wives enough to study their hearts and to sacrificially make decisions that have their best interest in mind? Do we know their hopes in their dreams? Do we know the things that make them sad? The things that they care about? Uh, brothers, if we don't know this, we're not loving them in the way that Christ has called us to love our wives. Now, the reason I can tell you this morning uh, this is because as a husband, I'm killing it. What? Yeah, that's not true. You know, the reality is I actually had a, a conversation with Carrie just yesterday on the couch about ways I've been failing at loving her. Failing to listen to her. Brothers, let me just tell you, the good news this morning is, is that there's not any one of us that is the standard of what it looks like to love our wives. We don't have to brag about what good husbands we are. Some of you are great husbands. But what we know is, is there is hope that bad husbands can be better husbands because of what Jesus has done and because he has given us his spirit. And if we have his spirit, we want to be better husbands. And we need to be convicted of sin. We need to know that there are ways that we need to love our wives better. Uh, There is no way that wives of men who claim the name of Christ should not be an example of what it looks like to love a woman. And there is no way that our wives should not be able to rejoice and brag on Jesus and the men that Jesus raises up in the way that they treat women. So brothers, let's together just get our stuff together and love our wives in a way that honors Christ. Now, maybe you're single and you're thinking, well, I don't have a wife. So what does that look like for me as a man? Well, let me just encourage you this morning. You need to know this. Uh, if, If you are not married, it does not mean that you don't have sisters in Christ that you need to honor God in the way that you treat them. The way that you treat them and you interact with with other women as a single man should be in the way that you would treat a sister in Christ and a child of God. That means that the way that you think about them, the way that you touch them, the, the way that you pray for them and the way that you serve them and talk to them should all reflect the fact that Jesus is the Lord of your life. They should feel like you're the kind of guy that loves them better than the men of this world. And maybe the more that we do that, the quicker you find your wife. So moving on. Number two. Second. Jesus' tomb was empty in verses 12 to 13. Uh, notice here what it says. Uh, the Word of God says this. 
And she, being Mary, saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the hand and one at the feet, or one at the head and one at the feet. In verse 13, they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid, they have laid him. See, when Mary looks into that tomb that had once been empty, she sees something unique in all of the Bible. She sees angels sitting at rest. Don't see that other places. But one sat where Jesus' head would have been, and the other sat at where Jesus' feet would have been, overshadowing in the middle where Jesus' body would have lain. Now, what's fascinating is if you read uh, a number of scholars, uh, you could go from like Brooke Westcott, you could read uh, Charles Spurgeon, A.W. Pink, all these different guys. All of them have noticed that this actually reminds them of an Old Testament picture. And they say something of this nature. They say that others all see that the angels at either end of where Jesus' body had been laying are functioning like cherubim at either end of the mercy seat ark where God would meet with His people. See, John could be saying that between these angels lay the sacrifice that atones for our sins and the man who was also God. Now, I love that image. I don't know if we can be sure that that's true, but what an image. What we do know, though, here is, is that Steve Doobie, I believe, got it right at our Good Friday service this past week when he said in John, the weight of the resurrection runs through the cross. See, Jesus was dead when he entered that tomb and his body was gone. You can be sure of that. Some people say, what if Jesus wasn't dead? Well, as Lee Strobel says, we know he's dead because Romans were really good at killing people. He was dead. And here it seems that we get a clue as to why Mary wept. I don't know that it's necessarily because Jesus was dead. I'm sure that was part of it. But she also believed that Jesus' body had been stolen by someone. And she simply wanted to honor his body. She wept for her friend. One of the most famous verses... In the Bible, in John chapter 11, where we're told that Jesus wept. And why did Jesus weep? Well, he, he wept for his friend Lazarus, who we're told that as he wept, onlookers said, we can see how much he loved his friend Lazarus. Loved him. And then what did Jesus do? Of course, he raised him from the dead. Here what we find is, little does Mary know that Jesus died so that He could come to wipe away every tear, both for the weeping Mary and for you and for me. See, Jesus had to come down. He had to come down so that He could go up. Why? So that He could make a way for you and me. So what's fascinating about this, if you're doubting the the death of Jesus, uh, we even have non-Christian historians who hate this fact. Uh, One, by the name of Gaze of Hermes. Gaze of Hermes writes this. He's a non-Christian. He's a historian. Hear what he says about Jesus. He writes, at the end of the day, there is one disconcerting fact for him, not us. (laughs) And he writes this, when every argument has been considered and weighed, the only conclusion acceptable to the historian must be that the women who set out to pay their last respects to Jesus found to their consternation, not a body, but an empty tomb. So here's the point. There's little doubt that Jesus's dead body was in the tomb on Friday under heavy guard, and it was gone on Sunday. Now, that matters. Why does that matter? Well, because third, uh, Jesus is alive. That's what we find in verses 14 to 16. Jesus is alive. Uh, Look at what we find in verses 14 through 16. Here's what it says. It says, Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. So here, catch this, Mary, she turns from speaking to these two angels who are asking her why she's weeping, and she is standing face to face with Jesus himself. Can you imagine? I think most of us would think that we were shocked. She doesn't recognize him. Now, you have to ask, why is it that she didn't recognize him? Uh, Maybe you've had this experience where you've uh, seen somebody out of context, 
and you try to place that face and you're like, I know I should know you, but I don't know where I know you from because you're not supposed to be here. I was not expecting you to show up here, right? I think we could chalk some of it up to that. I don't think she expected to see Jesus Christ alive when he was dead. That's out of context, right? But there are other reasons that have been given. You know, some have said she really struggled to see Jesus because she was crying so hard her mascara got in her eyes. It's really struggled. Others, as they have looked at this text, have said that it's because of the nature of Jesus' resurrection body, you know, which was sown perishable but raised imperishable and looked a little bit different than it did before. And so they just, they were having trouble placing it with that resurrection body. And that's why she couldn't recognize him. Well, maybe that's true. We do learn in John that the resurrection body is different than this body. And there are different facts associated with that body that don't hold true to this body. Um, That's good news, more for some of us than others. But here's what he says. He says uh, that his resurrection body, John shows us elsewhere, that that resurrection body can be touched. So it is, it's not like the cartoons where you have this ghost-like body that floats up, right? It's actually a touchable body. Uh, Also, he says that it carries the marks of the crucifixion. Jesus also eats, but he can walk through closed doors. And he isn't always recognizable. So you remember the folks on the road to Emmaus, they didn't know who he was. See, we're unable here really to to parse out exactly why she can't understand who he is, but I believe it's more likely that Mary actually pictures for us the spiritual condition of all of us in a broken world. See, we're unable to see with our eyes and our hearts the risen Christ, even though He might stand right in front of our faces without Christ's help. See, we need Christ Himself to help us see Christ. Evidence isn't enough. Evidence is good. Evidence is important. We have plenty of evidence. But we need more. We need Jesus to help us. We need Jesus Himself to help our unbelief. And I love the little insight that John gives us into Mary's head as he's telling this story. Notice what he says. He says that as she sees him, she misunderstood him for someone who she's supposed to be a gardener, who evidently she thinks has stolen Jesus' body. And she begs him to return if it's him that has taken her Savior. Now, she thinks that Jesus stole Jesus' body. Do you love the irony of that? Has Jesus stolen Jesus' body? Is he a gardener? I think she kind of got it right on both accounts. See, the eternal Son of God actually came down of his own accord for you and me. He willingly came. But he also took up his body, and then we're told in the verses previous that he actually wrapped the cloths and placed them back where they were. Now, why would he do that? He's not in a hurry to get away like a thief would be. He says, I got time. I'm not in a rush. Let me fold this real nice. Like, oops, the corners go this way. There we go. Jesus was in no rush. He was fine with people seeing who He was. And Mary, mistaking Jesus for a gardener, I think spoke better than she knew as well. In fact, one commentator says this, Devout Mary, thou art not very mistaken. You're not too wrong. As it was the trade of the first Adam to dress the Garden of Eden, so it is the trade of the last Adam to tend to the garden of His church. He digs up the soul by reasonable affliction. He sows in it the seeds of grace and He waters it all with His Word. See, up to this point, the angels and Jesus have called Mary woman. Very indescript language. General, not very specific. But notice that it all changes in verse 16. Verse 16 changes everything. In verse 16, we're told, Jesus said to her, Mary, period. That's it. He said her name. And with that, we are told that she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani. Rabbani, which means teacher. See, Jesus called Mary by her name, and she immediately calls him Rabbani. Now, of course, Aramaic is the language that Jesus spoke, and it's the word for teacher. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, what's so big about Jesus saying her name? Well, there's something about him saying her name that caused the lights to turn on. I think it might be 
a fulfillment of the kind of picture that was anticipated in John 10.3, where you'll remember that Jesus, speaking of himself as the good shepherd, said, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And here the good shepherd, who laid down his life for his sheep, now first calls out Mary by name. First Mary, Mary by name, calling you out, you are mine. Of course, what we know to this point is that Jesus was dead and now he's alive as the first fruits of the new creation. He's obviously more than a teacher, right? But teacher, I think, is going to work for now because she recognized him for who he has been to her. And take note here of the gravity of our faith being created. Jesus is alive. That's your statement. All of a sudden, gravity enters the room for our faith. He was dead, and now He lives. And because Jesus lives, that changes everything for us. I, um, just to, to picture this, grew up playing uh, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Any fans of Mike Tyson's Punch-Out in the room? That's how old I am. And so, I used to love to play this game because I, I loved Mike Tyson. He seemed mythical when I was in my age, right? Other stuff happened since. But at my age, he was the undefeated champ. He was Iron Mike. Nobody beat Iron Mike. He was undefeated 37-0 and 0, with 33 knockouts. Nobody stepped out of the ring on their feet, right, whenever they went up against him. I mean, most of his fights, they ended in the first round so much so that when it came time to fight Buster Douglas, they had to take the fight to Tokyo. Why? Because Americans were tired of paying so much money for a ticket to a 20-second fight. And the, to- the guys in Tokyo didn't know any better. And so they went there and they sell tickets to this fight to Buster Douglas and nobody thought he would win. The, the odds were something like 44 to 1. 44 to 1. Like those are amazing odds. And he steps into the ring, nobody expecting Buster Douglas to take him out. But in the 10th round, he knocked Mike Tyson down and out for the count. We'd never seen anything like it. One journalist who was speaking about this fight in retrospect took note of this he said Tyson was just never quite the same after that meeting after his loss he lost his confidence he lost his swagger brothers and sisters I want you to know that when Jesus went and took that cross and died and was raised from the dead he stole the swagger of death he robbed it death never quite walked with the kind of swag that it did in the past because it knew that it had been defeated, that the end was coming. Death understood that death was on death row. And at that point, what we find is, is a victorious Jesus who says, the fear of death will no longer reign over those who are my children. See, now I have started a new creation and death no longer has a reign over us. So the resurrection changes everything. Now, what does that change Uh, specifically? Well, for one, we know that Jesus' resurrection reconciled us to God and created a new forever family. It both reconciled us to God and created a new forever family. I think we get this picture in our last verses, verses 17 to 18. Look what it says. Jesus says to Mary, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. My God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to his disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now, if you look at this text, it might seem a little bit difficult. In fact, I don't know what version you have today, but it might say something to the effect of, uh, he told Mary not to touch her. Uh, But I believe that what we have in the ESV and, and other translations where it says, she was not to cling to him is actually more in line with the picture that we have here. See, Jesus isn't talking about touching, but clutching. And Carson explains Jesus' words there as this, saying this. He says this about these verses. This is what they mean. I'm not yet in the ascended state. So you do not have to hang on to me as if I were about to disappear permanently. This is a time for joy and sharing the good news, not for clutching to me as if If I were some jealously guarded private dream come true. So don't miss this. Mary doesn't want to let Jesus go. I mean, I think that's a natural 
reaction. If you see somebody raised from the dead, like we'll understand if you grab onto them and you don't want to let them go again. But Mary doesn't want to let Jesus go. And yet Jesus looks at her and sends her to go and tell. He says, I don't want you to sit around here. I want you to go and tell your brothers about what just happened. And I believe that's the right response to the resurrection. It is to go and tell. Isn't that the Matthew 28 response? All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And lo, by the way, you're not alone in this, I am with you always. I think that's the same thing we see here with the risen Lord. We see Him telling her that the right response is to go and tell others about what's just happened. It will change their lives. But when we come here, it's interesting It says, did you catch what Jesus calls the disciples? This might not seem strange to you, but it kind of is. He calls the disciples, my brothers. See, Jesus doesn't call the disciples brothers in John's gospel until this very moment. And this, I believe, is fulfilling Psalm 22-22, where he says, where the psalmist says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Hebrews 2 actually picks up on this, and he says that Psalms 22 is showing how Jesus became fully human, one of us, so that he might bring his brothers and sisters to the Father, that through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. See, John doesn't call the disciples brothers anywhere in John's gospel until right here. This for the first time, and it's interesting, you would think that Mary was like, I thought your brothers didn't believe in you yet. But he's not talking about physical brothers, he's talking about spiritual brothers, these disciples. And and here what we find is, is Jesus' first instructions after being raised from the dead are, get my brothers. He calls for his family. Now why? See, I believe it's because something relational changed between Jesus and his disciples after his death in our place and his resurrection from the dead. See, he sealed our adoption. Jesus announces that the cross of Christ accomplished full redemption that led to adoption. Their status with God has been forever changed. They are no longer rebels, but sons. And Jesus here in this garden starts a new creation on the cross, and a new family of those who have put their faith in God. It's a new family that's breaking out in a new creation. I mean, this is the beautiful thing. You might not have thought about this, but the cross actually has brought us a double grace. Through the cross and the resurrection, we have have received two things. We have received forgiveness of sins and adoption as sons. And both of those are amazing. We have been forgiven. Our our debts have been forgiven have been paid, but also we have been given a new gift that's amazing. Sonship with God and inheritance forever. See, by faith we are united with Jesus, the eternal Son of God, and become adopted sons and daughters of the living God. And catch this. In that family, God loves us not based on our own merits, but on the merits of Christ. And in the Bible, you know things are good when there's shalom in the home, right? I mean, what we really want, all of us, is a peaceful home. We want the most intimate area of our lives, our very bedrooms, to have peace in them. And here what we find is, is that God has made that break out into the family of God, the household of God. Why? Because we have peace with God. We can have peace with one another. And that's why Jesus tells her, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. Tell them this. My Father and your Father. Disciples need to know, my Father is your Father. And to my God, who is also your God. You see it? Jesus came down to go to the cross for us and was raised up to the Father, opening a way where there was no way for you and me. Jesus unleashed the privileges of heaven upon us through his death and resurrection. Isn't that great news? That's great news. Now, there are a few things that we can take from this. The first is this. We know that Jesus is our understanding brother. Jesus is our understanding brother. Now what that means for you and me is is that Jesus actually came down and took on human flesh. Didn't have to. Was living in an infinite, eternal relationship with perfect union with God. 
And He chose in mercy for us to come down. And not just to come down, but to come down and enter into human flesh so that He experienced every suffering that you and I suffer and more. He actually experienced the very wrath of God for us on the cross. The just wrath that we deserve because of our sins. He, he came down and experienced all those things for us. Now here's what that means for you and for me. It means that you can trust that Jesus understands you and that God understands you. You know, maybe sometimes you're thinking to yourself, life is so hard and I can't believe that God actually understands how hard this life is. Well, when, you, when you hear those voices, just know this, there's another voice that speaks from the cross and that voice is this, it is finished. Like, I came to the cross for you. I experienced death. I absorbed the wrath of God so that I've experienced every suffering that you suffer. And I did it all because I love you. He is an understanding brother. Jesus loves you. You can't ever reject Jesus because he's not a loving Savior. It has to be something else. But there's a second thing that we see here clearly. And that's that as Christians, if we put our faith in Jesus, we have peace with God the Father. Just think about it. He tells them, I want you to go and tell them that I'm, I'm ascending. I'm on my way up to go be with my Father and your Father. Now, this is not really complicated theological language. He's talking about the kind of love that a good dad has for his children, right? Not talking about a bad dad. Not talking about abusive dad or a neglectful dad. We're talking about God, who is the dad after whom we all ought to model how we treat others. It's a good dad. And what he wants them to know is, if you want to know the way that God feels about you now, thinks about you, has made plans for you, treats you, it's like that of a a father who loves his kids. Now, of course, that, that strikes me like really heavy because I have three sons sitting on the front row right now who are kind of paying attention. <laughs> and as you, if you know me and you know Carrie, there are a few people in this world, there are a few things in this world that bring us more joy than these three little boys. We take delight in them. As they turn red right now, it's because they know it. We love to give them things. We love to protect them. If there's one thing that you want to see mom and dad spring to action for, it's whenever we see that they are in trouble. And we know that our kids, there's one thing that they long for in their hearts, uh, is that we have their approval. We give them approval, right? So uh, my kids love to play basketball. Love it. Love to go out and play basketball. And they always want me to come out to be an audience for watching them play basketball. Why? Because they want to show dad what they can do. They want, they want to show dad that they've been practicing. They want to show him their skills. They want to show because they, they care about what their dad thinks about them. And do you know what we find here? We find here a picture of the fact that we have peace with God. We were once enemies and rebels of God. We once deserved His wrath, still do. But everything has changed since the resurrection. Now we have peace with God. Not because we just all of a sudden magically became better kids, but because Jesus changed our identity. And as the Father looks on us, When we are by faith united with Christ, He sees us through the lens of who Jesus is. And that's the kind of love that our Father has for you and me in Christ. Now now please come in close. Here's what that means. That means that you really can please God. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, everything I do, it's filthy rags. Not in Christ. In Christ, the Father looks on you as His child and delights in your efforts to glorify Him just as He delighted in and Jesus glorifying Him. He loves it. And what a relationship change. But catch this. The third thing that we see here is that we, I believe, ought to fight for peace in the family. Now, I know it's not explicitly here, but, but it is, I believe, by implication here that we ought to fight for peace in the family. You need to be in a, a church family where you're in committed relationship with one another. Where you are actually fighting to have Peace. Not fighting to fight, not fighting to win. I know we tend to do that, but fighting for peace. You know, one of the things that I think is so encouraging um, in my life as I experience life with other brothers and sisters in Christ is watching how different our family life is than other family lives. And I mean that in the context of a local church. I love it when brothers have difficulty with one another. They even have a disagreement that's hard. And rather than doing what the world does, which is write them off, walk away, and speak poorly of them, They actually engage in that relationship. They sit down with them and they seek reconciliation to the glory of God. You know why? Because it's such a picture of Jesus. 
who doesn't abandon brethren who don't act right, think right, or do right. He actually comes for them and lays down his life for them. He makes sacrifices for those relationships. And that's exactly the kind of thing that the cross invites us into as we are part of the family of God. Now you might be wondering yourself, okay, I'm here this morning and I, I'm not part of the family of God. I'm not a believer. I'm not a Christian. What does that look like? Well, I, I love the picture. Charles Spurgeon in this book, All of Grace, says there are really three aspects to becoming a, a true believer of what true faith looks like. He says the first is you need to know the gospel. That's that message about our good God who created us, who rules and reigns over us. And the fact that we as humankind have have sinned against God. And as as sinners, we are enemies of God. And we, we we need help. And we find in the Old Testament that even when God hands us the rule book, we can't obey and please God left to ourselves. We need... We need someone better than ourselves. We need another hero. We need Jesus. And Jesus is God's Son who He sent down to take on flesh, to live the perfect life that we could not, to be raised from the dead, and and to declare after He died on the cross and was raised from the dead that we are forgiven our sins if we put our faith in Him. See, that's the Gospel. That's the good news. That's the content of it. But that's not enough. See, Spurgeon says it's not just knowing the content of the Gospel. Second thing is you have to understand that that's a story that's, that's something that you need. Not just that Christ died for sinners, but that you're a sinner. And that you need Jesus to actually die for you. And maybe that's you this morning. You've been in church your whole life. You've been twice. This is your first time. And you've, you've heard this story of the Gospel, and you think, yeah, that's great that that's true, and that's a good thing for people to believe in, but you've never actually seen yourself as a sinner before a holy and righteous God. You've never seen the fact that you need to be saved from your sins. Not just that like really bad people do, but you need to be saved from your sins. That's the second part. But catch this, he says you're not there yet. There's one last thing. You need to understand this idea of what the Puritans called recumbency. Now, you might say that sounds like a really big old word, and it is. But I'm guessing that you probably know what I'm talking about when I use the word recumbency. If you've ever had a lazy boy chair, then you probably sat back in a lazy boy chair and you've rested in it. That's a recumbent chair. And the reason that you can rest in it and watch a football game and not get scared is because you know that it's going to hold you. You've trusted that chair to hold you. And most of the time it does, right? Well, what we know about the gospel is that it holds you every time and it holds your life. And and what Spurgeon says is you need to trust faith with your life, with how you live. You are resting in the gospel with every decision that you make, seeking to follow Jesus, trusting that he is as good as he says he is, that he really has saved you, that you do have a future and a hope. And pray for us as we go that we take this glorious hope of the resurrection and the great fruit of reconciliation both with God and the new family, that we take that from this place with us and it brings us great joy in our hearts. Let's pray together. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear. Hour I first believed when we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun. 
71% of teens have admitted to hiding what they do online from their parents. This is just one of the many, many reasons I believe it's so important to protect all of our devices with covenant eyes. I've been using it for years, and if you do not have protection on all of your uh, computers and cell phones and tablets, let me encourage you. Visit CovenantEyes.com today. Receive a 30-day free trial when you use my name. Dustin Daniels with no spaces in that promo box. Coming up next is Praying for the Next Generation. Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I'm the host of this program, Praying for the Next Generation. When you think about the next generation, what word comes to your mind? Recently, I engaged in an intense conversation with a group of friends concerning Generation Z. This generation refers to young people who were born between 1997 and 2012. They are the youngest and most diverse generation in U.S. history, and they are also known to be different from previous generations. Let's take a look at a few key characteristics that define them. They are technologically advanced, and they live in the post-digital age. They were exposed to the Internet, smartphones, and social media from an early age, and have never known a world without them. In fact, living in this technological culture every day significantly affects this generation in how they communicate, build relationships, obtain new information, choose their careers and jobs, and view their identities. Much of their communication is done through texting and social media programs, such as Instagram and Snapchat, rather than through talking on the phone or even in person. Yet, surprisingly, this generation longs to be a part of a healthy community since many of them come from broken homes 
and face a reality of pain and the absence of true and authentic relationships securely built on love and trust. In fact, many of them actually prefer face-to-face communication regarding topics of their passion and interest so as to experience transparency and authenticity in their interactions. Sadly, we see an exponential increase in depression, anxiety, and suicide, as well as an addiction to drugs, pornography, and unprecedented levels of social media use among this generation. So then, who can save the next generation? Where is the hope and future for them in our rapidly changing culture? Jesus is the only answer who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His powerful name is their only hope. It is time to cry out and see the will of God being fulfilled in their lives. Let's pray. God, we exalt you, our magnificent King. We'll praise your holy name forever and ever. Great are you, Lord. You are worthy of our highest praise. Your majesty and glorious splendor have captivated our hearts. Father, we hear you calling us to pray for the next generation in this hour. Fill us with your love and wisdom as we unite our hearts to cry out to you for them. In your spirit and truth, let us be the generation who makes known your eternal kingdom to the next generation through our fervent prayers and godly lifestyle, so they will know your love, your truth, your power, and your mighty acts, and ultimately put their confidence and hope in you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Starting next week, we'll pray for the next generation using God's Word with four steps of prayer. Praise, confession, thanksgiving, and intercession. Until then, remember, God loves you with His everlasting love.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.